Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I got to tell you, I've done hundreds of those episodes, but I've never had a Super Bowl winner, you know, turn entrepreneur that is now on his second, you know, successful venture. So, you know, it's going to be quite a hell of an episode. So very inspiring. So again, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, taking companies public, and all of the above. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Doc Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here. So originally born in New Jersey, but it didn't take long until you landed in the Bay Area. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, I mean, I had a, a great childhood. I, I thought I loved New Jersey until I went to California. And then I realized I never wanted to live on the East Coast again. So I know you're sitting there in Connecticut today. So uh, no offense. Um, I'm sure you like California too. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I, I moved here when I was young. And yeah, I mean, really, I mean, I, I, I had an opportunity to move around the country when I was playing football. But like, I mean, I grew up in the East Bay, went to school at Berkeley. I mean, I've First job was in the Bay Area, so I've I'm a kind of a Bay Area native. And how do you get into football? It's a good question. Um, I was a soccer player. Soccer was my life. Um, I my goal was to play in college, and um, I went to a a high school that was really great at kind of every sport, but like was known as a football powerhouse. It's called De La Salle. There's a movie called Perfect Effort made about it. The um, head coach had a winning streak. I think it was 146 games. It's the longest win streak of any sport at any level. And Bob Latticer is the head coach. And he was just this like legendary, amazing coach. And they had a soccer player that kicked my senior, my junior year. And when he left, my dad just had this idea like, you know, Doug, you're always the one that takes the penalty kicks and the direct kicks and you have this big leg and like what an amazing experience it would be to play for Bob Latticer for one year. Just what an experience. And so I went out there and I was just, I basically said, Hey, can I try out? And they said, sure. 
and they brought me out to kick a PAT. So like, you know, it's a 20 yard field goal. And I just kind of tapped it through the uprights. And they said, is that as far as you can kick it? And I said, no, you just said kick it through the uprights. And so I did. And they said, oh, well, you know, usually you kick a PAT kind of, you know, 90%, like, let's see how far you can kick it. And so I backed up and I kicked it over the track and over the scoreboard. And they're like, okay, you got the job. And so I played, I didn't know what I was doing, but I could kick it far. And so I had an opportunity to walk on at Cal. And they basically said to me, like, we think you have talent and potential, but we have an All-American who's a junior. Learn. If you take his position, when, you, when he leaves, you'll get his scholarship. And that's what I did. And how does that land you in the NFL? You know, that's saying quite a quite a quite an insane, you know, journey. I mean, the NFL and also being a Super Bowl winner. So how did that transition happen? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel extremely blessed. Um, you know, I think it starts with great parents and great role models, like people to learn from. I mean, I've worked really hard and I don't know, I've kind of, my whole philosophy has always been take one step at a time, work, like control the controllables, be disciplined, outwork people, work smart. Think of creative ways to, to do things differently or better than others. And I mean, really kind of by doing that, I mean, I, I walked on, I learned, I was patient. When I had the opportunity, I seized the opportunity. I won the starting spot. Um, I quickly set my goals from like being the starting kicker to being the all Pac-10 kicker. It was the Pac-10 in those days. And so just, you know, each consecutive step, by the end of my junior year, I was like, I can kick in the NFL. Like, I think I could kick in the NFL. Like, I can do this. Like, And then, yeah, all of a sudden, it was like I was getting interest and attention from NFL teams. And before I knew it, you know, I got a call one morning. I mean, I knew I was kind of in the discussion for a draft, but literally call from the 49ers at like 8 a.m. in the morning. And they said, we just drafted you with our 85th pick in the draft. And I was like, yeah, floored. That's amazing. I mean, the uh, the roller coaster of emotions, and I think that this has served you very well to prepare you to become a, a founder of a hyper growth company, you know, now. But uh, being a place kicker, the you also go through a tremendous amount of pressure. I mean, all the eyes are on you in the stadium to make sure that you're getting that kick, you know, through, through through the goal that you get the point. How is that roller coaster of emotions too, like mentally? What what does that put you through? Yeah, I mean, it's everything you just described and more. Because the truth is, I mean, I'm not saying anyone who's interested in starting a business should go like learn how to place kick. I'm not saying that, but like there's something unique about the isolation of that role. Like in those days, like nobody knew how to kick. Like I didn't have a coach. Like they didn't, no one could really teach you how to kick. So that meant you had to go figure it out on your own and tap your resources and get creative and figure out how to teach yourself. And so very isolated, no one's saying like, Hey Doug, you need to go out and practice today. It's like, get up, go out, practice when you don't feel like it, do, do all the work. And so, you know, to survive, like at the time, I mean, there's 32 kickers in the NFL. I mean, there's, it's the best 32 in the world. And it's like getting there is one thing. Surviving is a very different thing. It is hard to survive. The average career is less than four years. And so everything that I put into, and I invested 
really, I mean, everything. Like, I, I mean, this goes way, way beyond being all in on your craft. And there was just an approach that I developed that allowed me to, you know, survive and thrive for 12 years in the NFL. And I just found like the the founder CEO journey, like very natural. I mean, I was fortunate in that, you know, I went to a good school and I paid attention and I engaged and I learned. And then I got an MBA when I was playing. I was always very interested. I, I would say I had an entrepreneurial itch. And as soon as I kind of put myself in a position to try something, it was just like, I mean, the pressure, like the pressure I'm used to, it's like binary. It's success or fail. There's nothing in between. And you get one chance. The thing that always stood out to me and, uh, you know, hopefully as a perspective, maybe that others don't understand as well, but it's a perspective like in field goal kicking, I got one chance. I got one moment of truth. I made it or I didn't. What's always been so remarkable to me about kind of business is like, you get so many chances, like something doesn't work, like try it again, bring in different resources, talk to different people, try a different approach. Like you get so many different chances to get it right. Like I always felt like this is so much easier than being a kicker. Not that it's easy, but easier from like a pressure perspective and staying even keeled, not too high, not too low. You know, as your company grows, you have to be that like steward, that person that everybody's looking at for like, you know, optimism and confidence and assurance. And yeah, I mean, to me, it was like the ultimate training ground for being an entrepreneur. And one of the things there that, um, as you were talking about having that shot. I mean, you, you've you gone through, you know, different uh, situations, you know, situations of near-death experiences with your companies. And, and you know, when you have that shot, you know, and you got to get the point too, you know, I'm sure that you learn how to quiet the voices, how to quiet the mind, how to quiet the what-ifs. And, and what have you learned about that? Yeah, I mean, you raise a good point. There's so many dimensions of what I learned, but it's like... You know, I used to have this approach that when I stepped on the field, like there's a whole process on the sideline getting ready to go on the field for a kick. But as soon as I stepped on the field, I turned my brain off. Like all thinking was all about just doing the process that, you know, the letting the preparation that I'd put in just come out because there is no room for thinking. There's no room for thinking about the externalities you know, the consequences in terms of missing or making the wind, the cold, the field, the other gigantic 11 people standing seven yards away from you, like literally talking smack, saying you're going to miss, like there is no room to even acknowledge any of that. And so, yeah, when I've gotten into some tricky business environment, I mean, it's true. Like I can just naturally shrink the universe <laughs> into like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing I can control? And it's like, I'm not worried about things I can't control. I'm not worried about other things people are bringing up. It's like, what's the next thing I can do? Now, do I, do I make it happen? Does it work? That's a separate thing. But if it doesn't, I move on to the next thing. <laughs> and I really, I think I'm well-trained at like just not letting non-essential external factors distract me. Now, you won the Super Bowl, and uh, one of the things that um, 
you know, is out there and is that most athletes end up going bankrupt. You know, they are partying, they're wasting all the money. Uh, now, one of the things that you did and, and that you alluded to is you got your MBA, uh, you were studying, you were paying attention in class. So what do you think, you know, like got you into that path, you know, versus the path of going to nightclubs and spending all the money on, on, on nice, you know, looking cars? Yeah. I mean, I think that's where, um, you know, the environment you grow up in, um, the family you grow up in. I just was very fortunate to have, um, you know, parents that could afford to educate me, um, educate me themselves, model the way. Right. And it's like in one of my years with the Saints, that was the team I played with the longest. I was uh, elected the, the union rep. So I, so the, the NFLPA is the players union. Every team has one representative. And one of the jobs of the union rep is to get as many, as many players in the team to opt into the 401k plan. Now this 401k plan, like if you lined up a hundred wealth managers and you described it, for example, the NFL matches your pre-tax dollars three to one, like it would take exactly five seconds for every one of them to say, you should do it. Yet it was like a 40% participation rate. And so I spent a lot of time focused on that, but also just understanding other people's circumstances. And it's like, I could kind of see why they might not opt into it. And the point I'm making is that like, they just grew up in a different environment. They did not have somebody that modeled the way like I had. And so I really don't think of it as like, you know, a judgment. I'm I'm just making the point, like I was very fortunate and was shown that those things are important. And so I, you know, I did them. So out of all things, you know, after your career, you go into um, private equity, private equity, more for investment around real estate. So how do you land there? You know, it was a family friend that I'd been investing with. And, you know, I've always prided myself on being a student of the game right? Whatever game I was playing, I was going to be a, a student of that game. So what does that mean to be a student of the game? To me, being a student of the game means like you're a sponge, like you're absorbing things. You are like scouring the universe for morsels, for nuggets that I can learn and absorb and just, you know, have that growth mindset every day, get a little bit better. And so I started investing with him. Then I started saying like, Hey, we're looking at this deal. Can I travel with you to go look at the property? And then it was like, Hey, can I intern you for, for you? You don't have to pay me. Like, I'll just, what can I do to be helpful so I can be a sponge and learn things. And so it just put me in a really good position to where when I retired in 2005, I was 35 years old, never had a real job in my life. I actually still don't consider myself ever having a real job. But at that time, it was just easy to go work with him. So I joined him as a partner. I was, you know, in fund, I, mean, I was doing fundraising to, to, to bring more money into the, in, in, into the company. But like, I learned enough about the asset class, learned enough about his business to be able to go in and contribute and make it a pretty easy transition for me. So at what point do you realize, I think I'm ready to start my own thing? So we were raising money and doing value add apartments. So, you know, raising, you know, three to $10 million, buying, you know, apartment units or buildings, you know, two to 400 units that you could reposition, hold for cash flow. 
And we would buy apartment buildings, you know, like in those days, maybe like a five cap, five and a half cap, meaning the unlevered yield was five, five and a half. And that was about when the foreclosure crisis was was kind of in full swing. So by 2008, I mean, the banks were just trying to give away these homes in parts of the Bay Area where I live and I know the area as well. Prices had literally fallen like 70% in some areas. And so I started to sniff around and I realized I could buy a house in Pittsburgh or Antioch or Richmond or Vallejo, like not that far from, you know, the core, not that far from Subway. And it's like a 10 cap. And as, then I started asking around, like, what, why, why is nobody buying these houses as rentals? I'm trying to buy apartments and I'm competing for them and trying to pay a, a five cap. It's like, why would I do that? And the conventional wisdom from the real estate experts was, it's too hard to manage single family homes. They're scattered. It's, you know, you don't have one central building where you can create some economies of scale. And I ultimately just kept asking questions and really knew enough to be dangerous and decided, okay, I'm going to give up this apartment gig and I'm going to go start buying houses on my own because I can't see, I can't understand why nobody else is doing this. And obviously that uh, ended up becoming the company that you would start, which is Waypoint. Uh, and in essence, I mean, the company was um, quite the right, quite the journey because you ended up taking the company public. Is that right? Yeah, we took the company public. We went from literally buying houses with our own money, running out of our own money, raising high net worth money, raise money from every friend and family and their friend and family and their friend and family and their friend and family. I think like 130 million of high net worth money, then institutional capital, and then a partnership with Starwood Capital and Barry Sternlicht and a a REIT that was called Starwood Waypoint. We bought 17,000 homes in seven and a half years and then ran that REIT for two years and merged it with Colony American Homes. And what was the, uh, the journey like, that experience of taking a company public? I mean, amazing experience. I mean, I would say my takeaway as I sit here today is like, you know, going public and ringing the bell, it sounds great. And it, and it is, it's, it's a really cool milestone. I always say it's, it's like winning the Super Bowl of, you know, being an entrepreneur. Um, that's the moment. But at the same time, it's, it's a very hard and expensive process. And it creates an entirely different dynamic for a company. And so I think, you know, smart entrepreneurs, smart CEOs go public for very specific reasons. And, and they know what those reasons are in advance, and they prepare their companies for them. Um, being public is just is, is hard. And the market wasn't quite ready for what we were doing. And just because it was a new asset class, we had grown so fast, like we weren't totally ready for it. And so it was just a, a, a two-year journey. We grew a lot, but still were subscale. And that's why we ended up merging with Colony to create a 35,000 home portfolio company. Because at the peak, what, what ended up being the valuation of the, of the company at the peak? It was a little bit of, it was like a billion one enterprise value. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech. 
which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers, and that's again go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. Who would have thought eh, from kicking the ball to hey, to kicking the business all the way to IPO? That's amazing. So so now in this case, you know, for you, you know, there were a few near death experiences that you experienced with with this company. You know? And and one of them, you know, was say cutting it very close. It was uh, surrounding, obviously, financing events. But what happened there on that near death experience? Yeah. So originally we were going to go public on our own. And um we were all teed up and actually like having pre-meetings. And this is when um, Ben Bernanke basically like said, like, we need, like, we need to start raising rates. And the entire REIT market, when he said those words in 2000, I think it was 2013, the whole REIT market sank by like 25%. So like literally after those words came out of, the um, Federal Reserve's chairman, uh, Ben Bernanke, it was like the the IPO was off. But the reality was the way the business was constructed, we were like a shark. We had to keep eating. We had to keep buying money or buying properties. To buy new properties and grow and to support the organization we built, we need to raise capital. And at that time, private equity was hard to raise for single family because prices had gone up so much. You couldn't get a clear 20% IRR. We thought the public markets would provide us cheaper, cheaper capital. And it could have in theory, but the market changed. And so we very quickly had to pivot to looking at um, M&A opportunities, looked at a bunch of them, ended up partnering with Barry Stern looked at Starwood and creating a REIT. But in between all that, we also had a, a debt facility that needed to be refinanced. <laughs> and we got stood up at the altar that, by a bank that I'm not going to mention the, their name because ironically, they're now an investor in my current company. But <laughs> they made life very challenging for us. And we had to go raise $25 million in like two weeks to like basically oh keep the lights on. We had like less than two months of capital. And so those two things, like kind of a, a bank financing catastrophe along with a capital markets catastrophe, like, I mean, there was like four to six months of just like, I mean, I don't know how much you can see my gray hair, but it like quadrupled in like six months. <laughs> and everything uh, I, I said I, I, about I, being a samurai, samurai, you know, warrior and being super focused as being a kicker, like that tested my skills like nobody else i mean nothing else could. no kidding no kidding well hey you know obviously remarkable journey ringing the bell you know all all the all the all the good stuff that any founder you know could have ever or could ever dream of no now in this case as they say once an entrepreneur always an entrepreneur so um in 2016 you know is when the uh another opportunity comes knocking and uh, it's time to uh to get at it again. So what, what happened there? 
Yeah. So the whole goal, like once we got into Waypoint Homes, we realized, you know, single family rental is such a big market. Um, it's absolutely going to become institutionalized. You know, there's like 16 million single family homes at that time. And we had this idea that someone's going to own and manage a million homes. Like it's going to happen. It might take 10 years, might take 15, might take 20. But like, why wouldn't that be us? Like what, like we should be, because my partner Colin's an engineer, like we came in, like it was very clear, like there's a tech play in single family, like no other real estate asset class. You had to build your foundation on like 21st century technology. And the truth is with Waypoint, we created a Franken system of existing technologies that were created for multifamily, other asset class, like it just, nothing about the software that any company was using was specifically designed for single family at scale. And so when it was clear we were going to do the merger, like we, we just started talking about, I mean, I got offered, you know, a role to go on and, you know, potentially lead the company and sounded great, but it just, that's not where my heart was. It was always on creating. And so we kind of stuck to this idea, like, okay, 17,000 homes, like it was a lot, three and a half billion dollars worth of homes, 17,000 homes, but like, that's nowhere near a million. Like, what do we need to do to get to a million? And we realized we're spending half our time raising capital. We're operating on a, on a technology infrastructure that is not going scale to scale to a million. What if instead of focusing on raising capital to buy real estate, what if we raise venture capital and build an operating system for the industry? So that future investors don't have to go start a waypoint. They can just say, hey, we want to deploy capital on single family. We can, you know, use mind, leverage mind. So we're an a end-to-end, full-service, uh, tech-enabled operator. We, it, it's our own people, process, and technology. We help retail and institutional investors um, buy properties renovate properties, finance, insure, and we do all the property management all in one um, operating platform. And so the whole idea was if we follow this like asset light model, focus on scalable technology and use of data, like that's a better path to get to a million. And so we decided like, hey, let's learn. I mean, it's the classic like serial entrepreneur kind of building on an idea and it was like Waypoint Homes was version one. We had success, but learned a lot about what real success could look like. And so mine was all about part two. How do we take everything we learned, bring in the best people we'd met along the way and build something that could be bigger and better? And so I'm proud to say like within the last year, we passed Waypoint. We're at 18,000 homes now. We have a full you know, operating platform that we do all of our work in. We have about 800 people on our team and um, continuing to, to grow. It's a very challenging environment, but you know we're continuing to, to grow. And still, I mean, literally, uh, our, our BHAG, our, our vision is to power a million homes. That has not changed. That, that's the North Star. So for the people that are listening then to get it, what is the business model of mine? How do you guys make money? We're fee for services. So we 
act as broker. We earn a brokerage fee. We renovate homes. We get paid a fee to renovate those homes. We get financing and insurance fees, and we get fees to do property management. So you can use it. Most use us for everything, but you could use us for one thing or another, and we get paid a fee for it. We raise venture capital. We've been fortunate to have, you know, attractive multiples on revenue that have led to, you know, increasing value over time for our investors. And and then also talking about venture capital, how much capital have you guys raised today? We've raised about 200 million. And what has been that journey like on raising the 200 million? Um, it's been, you know, it's raising capital is never easy. Um, but I would say like if you were kind of plot each financing, like there's been some that were a lot easier than others. Uh, we had one particularly hard financing, our Series C. We were just kind of like the market was changing in terms of what Series C investors wanted to see. And the truth is we just weren't quite there. Um, we closed the deal one week after the NBA season was canceled in COVID. And we counted that we had 136 notes. Wow. 136 different investors said no, but we raised $40 million. Wells Fargo led our round. Um, great inside participation. Um, and we were very fortunate to have some investors that like, even though the numbers they were, the, the market was looking for weren't exactly there, they saw our vision. They, they understood what was happening in single family rental. And I think they understood and appreciated our, our vision. Do you think that uh, also perhaps the fact that you were at it now for the second time and that with your previous company, you had uh, you know some serious success, do you think that that was helpful you know, when raising money? No question about it. Especially probably at the earlier uh, stages where they're betting on you and the future, no? Yeah. I mean, there was a bet on my partner and myself and the team we we built. Like, I mean, it all goes hand in hand. It's like, okay, why were you able to build a good team? Well, because we've had practice. <laughs> we practice like we're <laughs> students of the game and we could attract good people. And so, I mean, that stuff all creates a virtuous snowball that can so, roll down. So when we're thinking about vision here, obviously, you know, it's something that the, you know, those investors and the 800 employees that you brought on board, you know, I'm sure that they were very, very excited about. Let's talk about the vision here. Imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of mind is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, so it's this, you know, the the name mind comes from what I think is the ultimate emotional goal of investing in real estate and that's peace of mind. Right? So what is peace of mind? Like what what has to happen for peace of mind to be felt? Like it's not to make people rich, although, you know, investing in real estate can do that. But like the vision of the company is really about peace of mind. And I talk about a million homes, but like the truth is you got to earn the right to be big. You don't get to a million by saying, I want to be a get to a million. You get to a million by creating peace of mind one investor at a time. So what does that mean? They're getting the financial outcomes they want from their property. They're getting a partnership that allows them to have a partner that kind of like handles all the heavy lifting, the the hard work associated with investing and be able to 
enjoy the fruits of your labor and live the life that you want. Maybe it's I want to spend more time working. Maybe it's I want to spend more time traveling. Maybe it's I want to spend more time with my family. Like that's the peace of mind that real estate can create. I was very fortunate because I I got to try it and live it at a pretty young age. And investing in real estate's hard. I think it's like 10 million Americans invest in fee simple real estate and 180 million invest in the stock market. Why? Because it's hard. So how can we, by leveraging technology and data at a platform approach, make it easier for people to do it so that we bring in more real estate investors so that they can create wealth over time and ultimately peace of mind so they can live the lives that they want and have financial freedom. I love it. Now, let's talk about the past, but let's do it with a lens of reflection. Let's say I'm able to bring you back in time to that moment where, you know, you were finished with your NFL career. You were retiring. You were 35. You were getting now into the real estate, you know, uh, investment, you know, side of things and, and learning about it. And then you started to perhaps wonder, you know, at one point there, you know, that you were going to do something of your own. Let's say you were able to sit down with that younger self at that specific moment in time. And you're able to give that younger self one piece of advice for launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I'm going to give you a funny answer, which is not my real answer. But like, I always get asked, like, how did you guys, how, how did you know to start buying? Like, I think everybody during the foreclosure crisis saw like the opportunity to buy houses, but nobody did like. Why did you do it? And, you know, we did it pretty aggressively, but man, the truth is like, I would have put more into it. We should have bought more houses. That's not my real answer. Um, although I would have done that. I would have liked to have done that. Um, <laughs> the real answer is I just think, you know, the thing I said to you in our, in our pre-interview about like my real passion is, is finding the one plus one equals three magic on teams, right? So to me, a business, a company, it's a team. Um, I, I was very fortunate to play on some amazing teams with amazing leaders, both coaches and captains and just leaders. And like, I've seen how that puzzle can be put together. It's never put together the same. Every team, every company has its own dynamic and, the, and it's, a, it's magic to try to find it. And it can evolve over time. Like you gotta, it's never set in stone. It's always that magic. And I've just found that um, as a leader, as I've gotten to know myself better, I've become a more effective leader and more effective at finding that one plus one equals three magic. So my simple answer would be go to therapy, start therapy earlier. Like, I mean, I sort of got to midlife crisis 50s when I realized like I, I have to do this as opposed to being more intentional and more aware at an early age. Because I think when you increase the awareness of yourself, it allows you to see others. And it's kind of a simple statement to say, like, you know, people want to be seen. <laughs> you need to see other people. But like, what that means is highly subjective. And to me, people were kind of a means to an end for like my goals and ambitions. And I just, I think I could have been, I could have made a better impact on, on the people around me. I could have built more successful companies, created more magic if I would have known myself better and therefore been able to like see other things in people and 
help them be the best versions of themselves and created a better, better team. So go to start therapy sooner rather than later. Wow. I love that. Read oh. Eckhart Tolle. Like there's lots of ways to do it. I mean, it's not therapy is just, I think, very valuable, but like, you know, be a student of the game of yourself. Like try to understand yourself, read, read, educate yourself. Now, for the people that are listening, Doc, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? I, I mean, I'm I'm on LinkedIn. Um, my email is Doug at mind, M-Y-N-D dot C-O. Um, not super active on Twitter, social media. I'm, I'm busy and I don't know. I just, I, I like to, just not super into it. But um, yeah, email me, reach out through Mind. Um, yeah, love to talk to other entrepreneurs. I've been involved with YPO for coming up on 12 years now and really love collaborating with and learning from other leaders. There's always so much to learn. Amazing. Well, hey, Doc, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Yeah, really great to meet you, Alejandro, and heard lots of great things about your show. So honored to be on it myself. Hope, hope we can do it again someday. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.